You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's March 12th. Yesterday, President Biden signed into law the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. The bill includes $123 billion for K-12 public schools. Districts can use this money in a variety of ways to support reopening safely, including testing staff and students for COVID-19. But even with more funding, launching successful testing programs may prove difficult for schools. A new RAND study shows that, even for well-resourced districts and schools, COVID-19 testing was a major undertaking. It requires access to rapid turnaround tests, additional staffing, strong partnerships with public health departments and health systems, technical assistance, and a strategy for successfully engaging the school community to participate in testing. There are ways to overcome these challenges, and federal relief dollars could certainly help. For instance, funding could enable schools to partner with testing vendors and get the technical support that they need to manage logistics, an area that may be particularly important, according to our study. Overall, the authors conclude that while COVID-19 testing in schools is complex, it is doable. It's also worth the effort. Testing could go a long way toward helping families and staff feel more comfortable with returning to in-person instruction. One year ago yesterday, the COVID-19 outbreak was officially declared a pandemic. But according to RAND research, the global spread of the virus actually began increasing at an accelerating rate three weeks before this declaration, on February 19, 2020. In fact, by the end of February 2020, More than five cases of COVID-19 per day, or nearly 40 per week, were already being exported around the world. These findings are part of a RAND project that analyzes COVID-19 infections and air travel data to predict the spread of the virus. They underscore the importance of developing a responsive, forward-looking, analytical basis for making decisions about current and future pandemic risks formal public health declarations may occur too late to be effective triggers for these decisions. Anyone who applies for a government position that requires a security clearance is required to undergo an in-depth vetting process. Traditionally, many different factors have been used to gauge an individual's eligibility for a security clearance, from certain lifestyle choices to personal and professional associations to financial circumstances. But a new RAND report finds that such factors may not account for social changes that affect younger Americans, and personnel vetting guidelines should be adjusted to reflect these realities. For example, marijuana use, which is now legal in many states, could be deemed less of a concern than non-medical prescription drug use. And because so many young people have large amounts of college debt, student loans should be considered less risky than other forms of debt. Overall, the authors note that the federal government should continuously reassess risk factors based on these and other trends. One in every five American adults is caring for a loved one in need. An aging parent, an ailing friend, a spouse with an incurable cancer. Too often, these caregivers have to fight to make their voices heard in a healthcare system that doesn't always see them as partners in care. 
To find out what it might take to change that, RAND researchers conducted a study that included interviews of healthcare providers, payers, and caregiver advocates. The findings help to identify opportunities for healthcare providers to make sure that family caregivers are more involved. Here's an example. As things stand now, clinicians sometimes don't even know that their patient has a family caregiver. But what if patient records included a new field to record the names of any potential caregivers? This would prompt healthcare providers to get this information. Additionally, hospitals and other healthcare providers could consider training their clinicians to communicate with caregivers so that they can better understand treatments that are being given. Notably, no one we interviewed was in favor of the status quo, but some suggested that one medical specialty in particular could offer some important lessons for the rest of the healthcare system, pediatrics. As a matter of course, the pediatric model always includes parents, guardians, and other caregivers in healthcare decisions. This could be a useful way to think about how to integrate family caregivers across the healthcare spectrum. Daylight saving time is this weekend. That means that on Sunday, most of us will be dragging ourselves out of bed and slogging through the day on an hour less of sleep than usual. And for one out of three adults, the usual amount of sleep is already too little, says Rand's Wendy Troxel. Troxel is a sleep scientist. She explains that this yearly ritual of springing forward doesn't just make us all a little slangry that's sleepy and angry. It actually has some serious, harmful consequences. For example, the days immediately following the switch to daylight saving time are associated with an increase in heart attacks, medical errors, and car crashes. This is a strong case for abolishing the practice and switching to a permanent standard time, Troxel says. But in the meantime, there are ways to lessen the pain that awaits us in a few days. First, prioritize sleep. While this is something we should all be doing anyway, it's especially important to make sleep non-negotiable in the days leading up to daylight saving, she says. Second, ease into the shift. Troxel suggests backing up your schedule in 15-minute increments in the days leading up to daylight saving time. Unfortunately, it may be a little late to start this process as we release this episode on Friday afternoon, but there's always next year. Third, get the right lighting. Sunlight has a powerful influence on our circadian rhythms and can help us feel more awake during the day. So get outside as much as possible during the daytime, especially in the morning. And at night, keep the lights in your home low. Fourth, and finally, if you're a night owl and your partner is an early riser, or vice versa, remember to recognize how not getting enough sleep can make you feel, and cut each other some slack this weekend. Generally, we know that lack of sleep can have a profound effect on our closest relationships, so recognition and acceptance of that fact can go a long way toward ensuring that springing forward doesn't set you or your relationship back. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.